So I have been on a Sufjan Stevens kick. Uh, I'm not sure if you know who he is, so you're going to get like a brief rundown. He made this Christmas album, and think in the year 2007, that is the longest Christmas album known to humankind. And that sounds like an exaggeration, but it absolutely is not. It is a two hour and four minute long album. And it's filled with virtually every Christmas song you could imagine. Uh, and then more, like he wrote original songs, it has the old Christmas hymns, it has the weird cheesy ones that no one really likes, but you gotta sing anyway. And it's brilliant, it's amazing. And then listening to that over Christmas made me go back and listen to his other stuff, which is really fascinating. Because he is this crazy artist that finds ways to make strings and woodwinds and like techno-y sounds all work together. It sounds super hyper and happy, and also the lyrics sound really depressing if you stop and listen to them. So he's like, we got the oboes going and the flutes, and you're like, oh, we're in Narnia, and we're just gonna dance in these field of greens. And he, like, then you realize he's singing about his mom who just died, and it sounds really interesting and complicated, but it's kind of what the Christian calendar looks like. Sufjan Stevens is a Christian artist, but isn't like explicit in his Christianity. And so he does things that people of faith will say, oh, look, I see you, friend, with our secret code. But he also does things that are like crazy enough that people who aren't Christian will say, oh, I like this guy, and I'm not embarrassed to listen to him. In the same way, he holds these strange tensions of sadness and deep, depressing, horrific events, and of happiness and joy and love and excitement. Christianity, in its humility, created its own calendar, and it's amazing. We've just exited the season of Christmas, Christmas which lasts for 12 days, finally ended on Friday. Merry Christmas. And then Epiphany started. And Epiphany is great because you think that Epiphany only lasts for one day. It's the name that we give to, uh, to the day that the wise men finally arrive. Because they don't just like pop up from the east in Bethlehem. They actually show up in Nazareth. But we're not going to do whatever. Um, <laughs> but now we're in Epiphany. And this is a season where we celebrate wisdom, where we celebrate divine revelation, where we celebrate with piccolos and with flutes and with oboes, we celebrate the happiness and joy, knowing that the next season coming up after Epiphany is Lent. So sadness and death and dying and darkness are right around the corner. And as people of faith, we're called to stand in the middle of that and offer hope to people. The goodness of life isn't in the frolicking in the fields, but it also isn't in the sadness and the suffering. It's somewhere in the middle. And the joy is, is that we find ourselves in this good enough life with each other. I feel like that is the setup. In the same way, in the scripture that we just read, Jesus finds himself on a hill. This sermon is extremely long. Not my sermon, Jesus' sermon. It lasts for pages. For those of you that had those old Bibles where the words of Jesus Christ are in red, this is the part of the Bible where it looks like it's bleeding. Um, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. There's like seven pages of just nonstop Jesus talking. Uh, Jesus and I have that in common. And 
the way that the Sermon on the Mount starts, I think, is the most fascinating part about it. Jesus is just walking. He finds himself on this mountain surrounded by people, and he looks out into the crowd, and he has compassion for them. And then he turns to start this sermon, and he says it so clearly, so beautifully. Blessed are those. Make happy those people. And the list, you would think, blessed are those, those people who are happy, those people who we need to be celebrating. In our society, we know who what that would follow. Blessed is Beyonce. <laughs> blessed is. Come on. Y'all know. Who would we be blessing? Blessed are. Famous basketball players. Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant and someone else who's being sued for something we don't know about yet. <laughs> Blessed are, come on, come on, Kurt, we're going to wake up. What? The Cubs. The Cubs. Bless well. <laughs> are the Cubs truly blessed? <laughs> we'll ask again in 108 years. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't follow that with someone that we would expect. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. It's an interesting values system. In the last service, I talked about how Texas and Chicago are very different places. Um, I am friends with a lot of pastors, as you might imagine. Being one has that effect. And past weeks ago, I, Lord, it was just amazing. They were posting all of these statuses. The homeless are dying in the streets. And I'm like, I know social justice. I am about this status. And so I'm going to click on it and see more. They're dying in the streets. We need to help them. We're going to collect some coats. We're going to collect scarves and gloves and mittens because our homeless are freezing. It is 65 degrees outside. <laughs> How are they going to make it? And then in Chicago, the homeless are dying. They are freezing. We need to collect coats and gloves. It's negative six degrees outside. And, uh, and I am here as a person from Texas, and I know 65 does seem cold to some people in Texas. When your norm is 100 degrees, <laughs> 65 seems really cold. Uh, but in Chicago, when your norm is like, <laughs> when your norm is 32, <laughs> 65 seems like, where's the air conditioning? <laughs> They're competing value systems. What is cold? It sounds very philosophical, but it, it really isn't that much drama. I'm thinking about this text, the scripture, Jesus laying out value systems, brought me to this place where I was downtown on Friday, and I was down there to meet with my therapist, which I recommend. If you aren't in therapy and have the means to do therapy, you should do therapy. Why? Because that's good. <laughs> just trust me. Anyway, so I just moved here to the city of Chicago in June. So one of my favorite things to do is just like get places early and go exploring. 
And so I'm downtown. I go to the Chicago Public Library Foundation building, which is just not a library, uh, which the first time I was there was kind of a disappointing thing. Libraries are supposed to be where all the cool books are. And I get to the library, and there's nothing but art. And I love art, but I'm like, here for the books. That to say, I had fun exploring the building anyway. And uh, I love architecture, and I love big buildings that shoot up to the sky and compete with the natural landscape, which for Chicago, I think the natural landscape would just be flat. But I love it. And then when I'm in these spaces, I think of myself not as who I am, but of who I aspire to be, the fictional Jarrell. And I'm going to let you know what he's like. <laughs> fictional Jarrell is nothing like real Jarrell. He is a political analyst or a professor. He has three adopted children and two dogs and has time to go to galas and the opera and the theater. This Jarrell manages it all. He even has like writes a book in his spare time. He's really fun. <laughs> Unlike real Jarrell, he doesn't struggle. He just achieves. <laughs> Whereas others sweat and break their backs this person just fixes it. And he steps into chaos and produces order. The professor slash strategist Jarrell, unlike Reverend Jarrell, never takes money out of his savings account. <laughs> he actually follows through with his New Year's resolutions. And he goes to the gym and doesn't count like the 10 seconds that real Jarrell follows his dog around the house as a cardio workout. <laughs> this fictional life is the hypothetical good life. All of us, I believe, have this fictionalized version of ourselves in our head. That person who does all the things that we say that we want to do. The person who doesn't have a bucket list because they've done everything they've wanted. This person that is portrayed for us all in television and in movies and in magazines and is presented as the ultimate ideal. You know the white picket fence with the golden retriever and the one point or the 2.4 children, I think it is, and they're a boy and a girl because we believe in the gender binary. And you just, you know, the fictional good life. I think that this good life is a competing vision with the vision that Jesus lays out. It's a beatitude that's different from the beatitudes laid out in Matthew chapter 5. So I tried my hand at rewriting them to make it more accurate for what we live by today. Are you ready? Blessed are those who feign modesty, for their social media bragging about their achievements shall receive likes and faves. Blessed are those who hide their emotions, for they will always be doing good or just fine. Blessed are rugged individualists because they're so perfect they don't need anyone else. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to please themselves, for they will get exactly what they're after. Blessed are the people and nations perpetually at war. Their country will always be safe, will always be the most powerful, will always be the most wealthy because they take the wealth and the power and the safety by force. I don't think there is a way to refute the reality that the Beatitudes we live by do not reflect 
the, the Beatitudes presented by Jesus Christ at the Sermon on the Mount. Our ideas about what the good life should look like differ greatly from the vision that Jesus lays out. What we celebrate and envision can differ greatly from what God envisions for us. And to give an example, while I was in the Public Library Foundation building, I came to this room. I told y'all I like architecture. I like the floors were really elaborate. There's apparently a woman who donated thousands of dollars to make the mosaic floors. And uh, thinking about what I would do if I had a lot of money, making a mosaic floor isn't the first thing, but <laughs> to each their own. And these mosaic floors come up to these marble columns that shoot up super high, like LeBron James high. And, uh, and, high, and it's so high up. And it comes to this faux dome that looks like stained glass and it's backlit so it looks like the sun is actually shining in even though this is like the second floor of a building and there's five more floors above it. And it's really interesting to see how much detail was put into every single etching of stone and this beautiful memorial was laid out. And I thought, who could this possibly be for? And it wasn't like a memorial for someone who gave their lives to your cancer, or a memorial, really even for a specific person, it was a memorial celebrating a war that the United States had won. Not like the families of so-and-so or the soldiers, but the war itself got a memorial. And I found that to be interesting, that we're celebrating and realizing a war when Jesus Christ, uh, in this Christian nation that we allegedly claim to be, told us that blessed are the peacemakers. Our value system is set up in such a way that we can't even imagine creating peace without violence. I think that says more about us than that says about Jesus. And when we think about who our most esteemed and highly regarded members of society are, the first people that came to our mind, athletes and Kanye West, people whose real mission in life is to just gather as much money as humanly possible. Their hunger and their thirst is for silver and gold when Jesus told us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Micah 6.8 is the linchpin verse on which we set the entire uh, new sermon series, The Good Enough Life. Micah lays out this vision for us, what good life looks like, what has God required of you, but to do good, do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with your God. It sounds so different from the things that we actually strive after. The goodness of life isn't found in the fictional lives that we fantasize about, but rather in actual, tangible ways that we treat other people. Doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. Doing justice obviously involves our loving our neighbors. Jesus said the greatest commandments 
love God, love your neighbor, essentially. You know, so we have this one down. Love your neighbors, do some justice. We're Urban Village Church. We got it, right? And then we have this walking humbly with God part, which is obviously a call to love God. And we know this. We learned this in Sunday school. But I think the part of the verbs that we tend to ignore is this love of mercy. Ooh, what? Oh, God. We're gonna, this sermon is about to take a turn. This love of mercy... I find it to be the most important part. We who live in a society that can't find ways of peace without killing each other, God calls us to love mercy. And the definition of mercy is the love and favor of God bestowed upon humankind. How do we operate in a way that mercy is our defining value? That mercy, like 32 degrees in the winter of Chicago is our new standard by which we measure what is or is not cold. Mercy is the way that we discover what is or is not the right way to move in the world. How do we bestow the love and favor of God upon all of humanity? But the love of mercy, I think the magic in it, is it's also a call to love ourselves. Because if we don't love who we are, we can't love our neighbors as ourselves. And we won't even know how to love God with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, our bodies. If we aren't loving our bodies, how can we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God? If we aren't loving our minds, how can we think up new ways to live into the vision God has laid out in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? If we aren't loving our souls and the drama of our emotions and the crazy way that we do things, how can we fully live into what God has created us to be? This love of kindness, this love of mercy is God's command to learn to love who you are so that you can be the best God has called you to be, that you can live fully into the reality of who you are so that you can move on to perfection. This idea, a Wesleyan idea of moving from where you were, moving from violence, moving from oppression, moving from bigotry, moving from ableism and racism and sexism and misogyny and hatred and greed and envy and strife and moving towards love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, justice, self-control, gentleness, moving into being what God has called us to be, moving into the blessed are those is a complicated system. And so John Wesley said, let's just call it Christian perfection and call it that, or sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ. It's difficult work. So difficult, in fact, that Jesus Christ himself compared it to crucifixion. He called it bearing your cross daily. Loving your neighbors is being compared to being killed. <laughs> And it's laughable, but it's also somewhat true. There are some neighbors that it feels like tortured learning to love these people. Don't act like you don't feel that struggle, too. There's that person at work. Not at my work. I work at Urban Village Church. <laughs> but when I didn't work at Urban Village Church, there was that person at work. And you know who that person is. Because you can even feel it when they walk in the door. And your spine, it just goes, and you're just like, ooh, Jesus. Like the exorcism, you can just feel the spirit and you need to get out. There's that person that will cut you off. And, oh, 
Mm. <laughs> the thing about Chicago I love and hate the most is that even when you can't drive because the cars are bumper to bumper, someone still miraculously finds a way to cut you off. Like, I don't know how you just fit that truck in two inches of space, but by God, you just did it. <laughs> and pissed me off. <laughs> Loving our neighbors is hard work, and not just that surface sort of love. Loving our neighbors is hard work because it requires us to be diligent. I'm not loving my neighbor in Syria if I'm turning off the TV every time it's brought up. I'm not loving my neighbor on the south side if I just move to a safer neighborhood and ignore the fact that thousands of people in the same city as me are facing violence every single day and my elected officials aren't doing their jobs to make my city safer. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself if I think that me saving $5 is worth a child working in a sweatshop. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself if I'm not constantly re-examining the ways that I move and operate in the world world to make sure that I'm not stepping over somebody or causing a microaggression. It's not being politically correct. It's called being someone who stops and looks and says, how can I love this person in a way that they can receive it that doesn't harm them, that doesn't devalue them or belittle them. It's not a PC thing. It's called being more like JC. Jesus Christ would do this. Notice that when Jesus comes into stories in people's lives, he doesn't say, oh, you're so down there, move on up to my side. It says when Jesus was in this crowd, he looked out and saw compassion. And then he spoke and said, blessed are those. Blessed are those who were told they weren't blessed and that their life work was devalued and was worthless. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek because we don't celebrate introverts. Jesus Christ said, blessed are they. Jesus saw Blessed are those who are cast out and decided to say, in spite of what the world was saying, I am going to call this valuable. I am going to call this worthy of love. And then Jesus looks at us as people who bear his name, Christians, and says, go out and do what I have done. Do greater things than these. When you see that someone is being belittled and devalued because they are dealing with mental issues, you are to call them blessed and to love them into being who they are really called to be, a person who is loved and celebrated and who knows the reality that they are a beloved child of God. When you see that people are being excluded because of their sexual orientation or their gender identities or their race or because they are a woman and men are assholes. You are called to say, blessed are women, blessed are queers, blessed are those who don't fit into binaries. And that is good news. That's the gospel. That we get to see where people are being abused and damaged and harmed, and we get to love them. And not just to love them, but to celebrate them. Epiphany the season of wisdom and divine revelation. So when people hear that Jesus does it, we tend to throw that to the side. And we say, oh, but Jesus is the son of God, and he has powers that I don't have. <laughs> and because Jesus has these powers, that means that I'm excused to not do the work. So God, because God is petty like me, 
snakes and other examples. We have an entire season named after this example. The season of Epiphany is given to the wise men. These are just regular old folks. Not really true. They're actually kind of rich and powerful and wealthy, but that's beside the point. They're still regular like you and I. And what do they do? They stop talking and they listen and they look around for where God is moving in the world, and they see a star that leads them to a baby in a broke-down town that comes from poor people who had a child out of wedlock, and they called him King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, and they bowed and they worshipped him and gave him frankincense and gold and myrrh, and they celebrated and said to this brown baby who was called worthless by society, blessed are you. So too are the people in this room and in Hyde Park, Whitlawn, and in Andersonville and the South Loop, people who claim to be bold, inclusive, and relevant, and claim to want to create Jesus-loving, inclusive communities that ignite the city. We too are called to be like the wise man and to step back and to listen for where the spirit is moving and to find people that are covered in cow manure, to find people in stables and mangers, to find people in Inglewood, to find people in the deep west side, in the deep south side, to find people not in the pristine halls of the ivory tower, but in the realness of life, and to find those who have been called nothing and to say, blessed are you. The world's word for you is not the last word. And I don't know what that does for you, but for me, it seems like it is a heavy job. Because what we are doing is presenting a clashing value system. The world has set up a system that works really well for the world. If the only goal is to make those who are in power, those who have wealth, more comfortable, or to help them out, to work and claw our way up so that other people look and celebrate how much we have. And we present this idea that we're only as valuable as the person at the bottom. And that person has the greatest value because they are a child of God. And to go from person to person at the bottom and continuing to affirm the goodness of their lives, that their lives are, quote, good enough, that they don't need to strive to be loved. They simply are. It's work. It's hard work. Because the world fights it. We live in a country that has even taken action to outlaw feeding the homeless, to outlaw homelessness, to make it illegal to even sleep on the street. And yet the message that we have from the God of creation is that the homeless are blessed and loved. 
our value system directly competes with the laws of our country. Because in the kingdom of God, no one is an illegal immigrant. In the kingdom of God, no wall can keep out God's children, no matter who pays for it. In our text today, and in Micah, we are called to resist the dominant narrative. Scripture calls us to speak less and listen more, to put our money where our mouths claim our hearts are. It calls us to love peace and to hate war and violence. It calls us to be merciful. It calls us to be gracious and pure of heart and generous. And most importantly, it calls us to do all of these things while clothed in humility. God isn't calling us to do something as easy as work nine to five and move on up to the east side, but rather God is calling us to do something as awful and as difficult as loving other people and learning to love ourselves. Living the way that Jesus wants us to is hard work. We don't do it alone. We are in it together in this community. We are in it together as a broader UVC community and as the church. We have the power of the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us, but it's still hard work. I don't want to, to dance around that. But I think only in living in this way will we really taste a life that's good enough to be called everlasting, that's good enough to be called abundant. And in this season of epiphany, of divine revelation, of wisdom, we are still learning the Christmas lesson. It is better to give than to receive. It is better to bless than to be blessed. Amen.